Hello and welcome to the IFSEC Global Security in Focus podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with leading figures in the physical security industry to get to the heart of the profession. We're back for episode 10 after a very short hiatus. Apologies for those awaiting a February episode, but well, the start of the year as ever got away from us a little there. Anyway, back to business and we've got a fantastic guest for you once again today. Named 2022 Influencer of the Year in our IFSEC Global Influencers in Security Awards initiative, Bonnie Mitchellman is no doubt deserving of that title. Based in Boston, Massachusetts, what began as a slight diversion from law school, a master's degree in criminal justice and an MBA, has turned into a hugely successful career in security. Today, Bonnie is Executive Director of Police, Security and Outside Services at Massachusetts General Hospital and Mass General Brigham Corporation, leaving her ultimately responsible for managing the security processes and team of the largest healthcare provider in the state, which includes 13 hospitals and hundreds of smaller satellites. Not stopping there though, Bonnie has demonstrated an impressive wider commitment to the security sector. She's been president of no less than three major industry associations, those being the International Security Management Association, or ISMA, ASIS International, which I'm sure many of you will know, and the International Association for Healthcare Security and Safety. As you can imagine, all that experience leaves us with plenty to discuss in today's episode. We cover everything from the benefits of mentoring, both for mentors and mentees, building relationships in the security industry, and developing resilience in a sector that enables such fantastic opportunities for strategic leadership as long as you can deal with executive teams who may not always see things the way you might. It's also fascinating to hear Bonnie's unique experience as president of ASIS International, one of the largest security associations in the world and particularly strong in the United States, which coincided with the 9-11 terror attacks. On a day that shook the world, the security industry was very much at the heart of what happened and in its aftermath. And Bonnie explains how the industry came together in what was a time filled with heavy and raw emotion. Finally, we finished the podcast on Bonnie sharing her thoughts on what traits she thinks are important for a successful security professional to have. So don't leave early. Just before we get into the episode, however, let's have a look at a couple of news highlights from February. In 2022, online community forum for security industry authority licensed operatives in the UK working the doors released the results of a groundbreaking survey it carried out into the sector. Almost 2,000 professionals gave their views on everything from training provisions through to pay rates and subcontracting. The findings revealed three key takeaways that require urgent attention, it says. The full story is on the IFSEC Global website, but in brief, the survey highlighted a significant need to address poor training opportunities, raise pay rates to reflect operative responsibilities, and to improve legal protections for frontline staff. Also in the news, our reporter Ron Alalouf recently explored the use of light detection and ranging to detect and track people. LIDAR, or light detection and ranging, is a technology similar to radar but uses laser light rather than radio waves to determine the position, size and shape of people and objects. Proponents say that unlike video cameras, which can be passive and rely on light for detection, LiDAR is an active system that can actively track thousands of people in real time. 
The technology is commonly used to make high-resolution maps, 3D models, and control autonomous vehicles. Could it be the next big thing in situational awareness? Time will only tell, we suppose. So, back to today's discussion, and let's not wait around any longer. Bonnie begins by explaining how she was first exposed to the private security world, and why, once she was in it, she never looked back. I was on my way to law school after college and, and couldn't afford the law schools that I had gotten into, so decided to divert and take advantage of a free ride and a full scholarship I had been offered by Northeastern University to do a master's degree in criminology and criminal justice. So when I did that program, it was an expedited program, it was in a year and a half, I got exposed to the private security world and I did some undercover work, I did some other work, and I realized it was a very fast-growing industry. It was highly homogeneous. There wasn't a lot of diversity at the time. There was a lot of avenues. It was lucrative, and I got very fascinated by it. And I've always been very interested in business. So I did choose to go into that field right after that master's, knowing that instead of going to law school in Boston, where I'm from and live, has a lot of lawyers, I thought maybe I would do another master's and do an MBA and get a graduate degree in business, which was an actually an excellent combination. So I went to work for a company designing and selling security technology. I had met the owner of the company. Actually, I was waitressing while I was doing my other master's because I was teaching also and doing my master's. So I was waitressing at night, met this guy who was happened to be the owner of a security technology company. And I hadn't thought about that avenue, but, you know, I went to work for them and young at the time and female, and there weren't a lot of us around. It was a great way to get some credibility by learning the technical end of the business, you know, commercial security applications and technology. And I had a really good experience, but decided I didn't want to be on the selling end or the business development end. I really wanted to be in operations. So I got involved with a Fortune 500 company who hired me as a security manager. It was my first foray into a real security career managing a lot of people. I had a partial proprietary and partial contract security staff at corporate headquarters for a Fortune 500 worldwide company and started my MBA. So that was really great and did that for a bit and then had an opportunity to go work as a director of security for a medium-sized hospital. And I thought that sounded really interesting. So the person who hired me took a big chance because it was a fairly big job. And he just luckily saw something in me in terms of leadership and creativity. And I had an awesome experience at that hospital. It was very challenging. It was very good. They really empowered me. And then I finished my MBA and a lot of companies were after me. It was a time in the U.S. where healthcare finances were going down the tube and, and things were very tough. So one particular week, I had gotten promoted to a vice president of operations at that hospital. I had 16 departments. And there was one week where I wound up laying off 60 people from my departments. And it was very sad. And, and I didn't want to feel like I was uh, ripping apart everything I had built up. So one of those companies was a national contract security company, now Securitas. It was a regional company at the time. Went to work for them for several years, managed about 1,500 people at, for about 60 diverse security operations from nuclear facilities to manufacturing to high tech to healthcare to universities, et cetera. Great experience, but later Mass General Hospital, which is my current employer, although it's expanded to Mass General Brigham, which is a large corporate employer, came after me with a, a, you know, a very interesting 
opportunity to come work here. And that was a lot of years ago. And at first I said no and actually gave them some other candidates. But a few months later, they came back and I decided to take that opportunity and planned on staying only a few years. And I've been here over 30 because my job has continued to grow and expand and I've continued to be developed. I took on many other departments and then we formed a corporate system with other hospitals. So I've taken on responsibility for that. And it's been quite wonderful, not easy, very stressful, very challenging, particularly in today's world with um, what's going on with violence and cyber issues, among other things. So that's part of what has really brought me to this place. But the bigger part in many ways has been the association work I've done. I've yeah. been privileged enough to be the president of three international security organizations. ISMA, which is the International Security Management Association, which is for very, very large corporations, the top security person in them. And ASIS International, which everyone will know, I was president of that during um, 9-11, actually, 2001, which was a privilege, but very difficult and wonderful. And I've been very active in that organization for many years. And IAHSS, which is the International Association for Healthcare Security and Safety. I've been president of that twice, and I'm still very active. I'm president of their foundation. Those organizations and being so involved on, on their boards for many, many years has given me a real strong foundation for not only the security profession and enterprise risk, but for leadership, for bureaucracy, for politics, developing myself, for strategic planning. So that's been really, really valuable as well. So I kind of feel like my career has been an accomplishment of certainly education, but a lot of work with other professionals along the way and in association work and in very, very good, solid employment and lawyers who have really given me the latitude to be able to make things happen and progress and progress other people. I think that's what I hear most about security professionals I've spoken to is them talking about the importance of associations to their career, the ability to network with other professionals, the ability to learn off each other is so important. And it's and it's it's often seems to be an underlying reason for staying in the industry for as long as people do, because they build up some incredible relationships. Let me just say something about that, because I, I think this is really important. This is one of the, the only industries, and I, I obviously know it well, but I do think this is true, that there is very little turnover in the industry. People change jobs, but they don't leave the industry. People are incredibly intact and loyal to staying in this industry and they love it. And I know for myself, it has been that way. I mean, my closest colleagues, my closest friends are all from the industry. And, you know, you're doing something that is so mission driven as security is, and so frankly hard at times. It's wonderful to do it with other people that have the same passions and the same challenges and the same understanding of what you're going through. And I think that is what makes this, in many ways, a small industry, even though it's huge, because we are really a large family that really help each other. Absolutely. And, and these associations are so, so key to that, it, it seems. There's, there's so much to pick out from the background. So bear with me a little bit. I'm just going to go back a, a tiny bit. You, you mentioned, you know, when you when you first started out in the industry, there, there weren't many young and, and female professionals in, in the sector. Do you feel like the industry has changed from that point of view? Do, do you feel like it's becoming more diverse? And how do you feel that's changed? Well, it couldn't have gone the other way because it was so not diverse. I think it's it's changed a whole lot. And in you know, to be honest, I had to be bold at times because the credibility factor when you're a minority in any, you know, a serious minority in any field, you have to listen a lot. You have to learn. You have to acculturate. You have to make sure people are comfortable with you and you have to strut your stuff. You have to show them what you're 
you're made of in work. I have been enriched to see this industry diversify a great deal over the past several decades. You know, women in security have made in- incredible strides. When I was the president of ISMA, there were only about six or seven women in the entire organization. There's still not a ton. Again, these are chief security officers for very large corporations, but there's way more than six. When I was president of ASIS International, I think only six or seven percent of the 38,000 member organization were, were female. I think it's progressing with culture and racial demographics as well and diversity, not as fast as I hope, but I think it has. I think we're doing a better job at recruiting people who haven't thought about security as a lifelong work. Remember, the people that populated this industry, and, and they were wonderful, were retired people from public law enforcement and federal service, federal service abroad and the FBI and Secret Service and DEA and State Department here in the U.S. And they were, for the most part, white men. They did a superb job in growing this industry, but now we know how important it is to have people not only from different cultures and races and genders, but from different experiential backgrounds. So we're looking at people who have more business background, who have cyber backgrounds, who have engineering and and architectural backgrounds to help us create even more inroads in moving this industry forward. Yeah, and there's so much to the to the security industry that certainly coming into it three years ago, like I did, obviously on the fringes as a, as a kind of editorial journalist side of things, I, I didn't realise how vast it was, how many roles there are to sort of go into and develop. And you can really create your own career from some of the conversations I had. There's just so many avenues now. And as you mentioned, cyber is, is just another one of those avenues that, that has come out of physical side. As you said, you, you you've been part of several of the leading industry associations and you've actually served as president I believe potentially all three of those is that is that right yeah what would you say your single biggest takeaway from your roles as president was for those associations that development and progress is bi-directional that you have to push yourself and get out of your comfort zone and, and really take advantage of learning a lot of new things and learning them from other people but being also willing to mentor and teach and develop other people and not stand for the status quo, but always push the envelope. What else can we be doing as an industry? What are some innovative ways that we haven't thought of to protect our infrastructure and our communities and our corporations? Those are the lessons for me and and really understanding that people have very different skill sets and very different passions and finding the skill sets and passions that people have in building jobs around them, whether they're paid jobs through people we hire, but also volunteerism. I found that people often were uncomfortable volunteering until they were asked. People want to be asked to volunteer and they want help and they want to know that you have confidence that they can do the job and then they're they're going to get support. And then they're really willing to understand that by volunteering, they're getting so much out of it as well as giving. Those were my lessons. Okay, lots of lessons there and and important to take that next step out of the box and think outside of the box in in many ways. For for young professionals coming through, firstly, I guess the first question is, do you mentor any young professionals? Is that something that you place significant importance in your your role as as a security leader now? I I do. I feel like that is what I am supposed to and, and should be giving back. I certainly mentor people in my own organization. I co-created the mentorship program originally for ASIS International with David Gibbs. That's a very important program. I mentor people around the country who I have received from different various sources who have said, would you be willing to mentor me or would you be willing to mentor someone who works for me? 
And I've also taught for 25 years at Northeastern University, mostly in the Graduate School of Criminal Justice, but have set up mentorship programs there as well for students. So I think that is very important. It's, it's almost like executive coaching that you don't have to pay for. Mentoring is a gift you can give someone. But, you know, you have to know how to do it and what people need. And people know have to know what is expected of them if they're going to be mentored and what their investment is. It's a very important relationship. Yeah. And what would you say people aren't aware of when they do ask for mentorship? Is, is it something that they don't provide on their side? Are they kind of just expecting all the answers? Or is I, I there think that's specific? right. I think sometimes they have not done a lot of introspection to see what it is they may need to develop in themselves. It's often useful to have them take some surveys or some tests that are out there to determine what their style, what their skill sets, what their personality is and where it fits well with and what isn't as strong for them. It's important for them to allow a mentor to talk to people that work with them or that they work for so that those people can tell them that person's strengths, but also areas they think that they would do well to have some, you know, work in. So I think sometimes people don't understand the value of a mentorship relationship, what they need to do to invest in themselves, and how important it is for career success. Hello, listeners. It's that time of year again. Registration is now open for the leading events in the security, fire and safety professions taking place at London's Excel between the 16th to the 18th of May. You can secure your ticket for IFSEC, FireX, Safety and Health Expo and Facilities Show now. There's a link in the description of this podcast to register, or you can find out more by visiting their respective websites. IFSEC is celebrating its 50th birthday in 2023 and will feature the distributor network for the very first time, alongside a separate conference on the incoming Protect Duty legislation plus the Converse Security Centre and LPCB attack testing zone and plenty more will all return as usual. And don't forget, travel has never been easier too, with the new Elizabeth line meaning that travel between XL and Central London takes just 15 minutes. Get it in your calendar early and register today. Let's get back to the discussion, shall we? For the second half, we start off by asking Bonnie why it is that she stayed in the healthcare sector for the majority of her career, one that can be extremely stressful and pressurising, particularly over the past few years. Sometimes I think I'm kind of crazy to be in that role. It's an extremely, extremely intense, the emotionality in these environments are huge, the vulnerabilities are enormous, the stress is very high. My current organisation has 13 hospitals over a thousand satellite facilities, big corporate headquarters, around 90,000 employees. And, you know, there's a lot of challenges in balancing. The challenges right now are significant violence in our environments. Healthcare is the largest violence of any industry. The smallest amount of active shooters, actually, which people don't realize is in healthcare, but the largest amount of violence by far, given the amount of people under stress, behavioral health patients, people who are dysregulated mentally, people who are perhaps homeless, people who you know are in situations, gang situations. There's, there's a whole variety of factors that create, even in children's hospitals where parents are so stressed out. The cyber threats right now to healthcare are enormous and very difficult to manage and, and stay on top of. And, and the loss of patient health information is a very serious thing. Any kind of sabotage with systems in healthcare is life or death 
for sure. There are significant issues with healthcare fraud, with extortion, with protests, you know, these days with so many people factionalized and extremists, extremists against research, which many of us do, extremists against abortion care, extremists against transgender care. For those of us who have enormous research facilities, which we do, there may be AIDS research, stem cell research, animal research that there are groups and individuals that are not happy with. So there's a lot of challenges. What I love about this industry and why I haven't left it is there is no greater mission than feeling like you're helping heal people and grow research that helps heal or prevent disease and, and illness. Seeing what our clinical colleagues do and knowing that we're helping them to be able to do it is so gratifying and satisfying. I have a team of people that are amazing that have worked for me a very, very long time and that care deeply about the importance of taking care of everyone, patients, visitors, vendors, most certainly employees throughout our organization. That makes me very happy and why I've stayed here. And I've been given the autonomy to be able to not only develop myself and my team, but to move things forward and to create real innovation in enterprise risk here. The kind of importance of the healthcare sector was, was never more plain than in the last couple of years with the impact of COVID-19. I mean, how did you respond to that? How did the, how did the hospital respond to that? And, and how did you respond to that from a security standpoint? COVID has been one of the largest challenges. I can't say the largest because we've had some pretty serious events. But the duration of it, I think I, I often joke with people, in, in some ways, I'm very glad we did not know how long this was going to last because I think that would have been even harder for us had we known we kept thinking it was going to be over. Having to lock down facilities, not allow visitors in to see their loved ones when in fact their loved ones needed them or were sick or perhaps even dying, to see the number of acutely ill patients with COVID in ICUs that were intubated and and in prone positions and, and not knowing if they were going to live or die, you know, sometimes hundreds and hundreds we had it at Mass General Hospital in itself at a time having to be affected by supply chain issues from COVID and scarcity and transportation issues and now labor issues and and workforce issues that we're having in every role group from physicians all the way across the board in healthcare is a very serious challenge. I think we've come to a new normal with how many of our hospitals operate with less entrances and having protocols for people because hospitals for the most part still are one of the few places you have to wear masks and disinfect your hands and all of that, asking questions and screening, but also having you know a huge percentage of the workforce who got sick along the way too. So having to close units, having to uh, regroup at one point in, in one of our Mass General Hospital, we had to convert you know a dozen additional units as ICU units that were not intensive care units before. So a lot of adjustments, a lot of adjustments, how people get to work. So we had at one of our hospitals, 11,000 people who take public transportation to work. And it went down to 6,000 because they were scared to get on public transportation for fears of contamination or safety or spread. And then there's nowhere to park people. So you've got to figure out how to get people to work when there's a situation or a scenario like this and how to deal with you know people who want to visit and how to deal with people that are deeply affected and going home at night after working 12 or 16 hour days and have to take their clothes off outside their house and have to go immediately to the shower and are not allowed to hug their children because they don't want to spread risk contamination. Those are all big issues. And when they go on for a long period of time, 
people are vastly affected and we've seen it. And now what we've seen from the patient population is additional violence. There's less ability to get patients throughout nationally. There's an inability to get throughput, to get people through our places to get specialized care in uh, mental health care. There's not as much mental health care as we need as a nation. There's not as many psychiatrists or facilities. So often people are sitting in emergency departments for days at a time sometimes waiting to be seen, waiting to be treated, waiting to get referred to another location. Well, that would make even the most rational person quite irrational. So things are very, very challenging for healthcare right now. And, and that what's been the beauty of that is being able to become and see our teams become more resilient and stronger and more multifunctional and being seen and respected by the rest of the institution in vastly different ways because the visibility and viability and extensive functional breadth and depth of our teams were very clear to all. We really did have to cross over into new lanes, and that was good. Yeah, so many challenges for every industry, but for the healthcare sector particularly, because it had, an, as you say, it had an effect on both staff and obviously patients and everything in between and all their families and, and close relatives and, and everything like that. Two more questions, if I may. Firstly, you, you mentioned the cyber risks that have come in, you know, over the last 10, 15 years. Do you have oversight of, of both the physical and the cybersecurity side of things? And if so, how do you merge and manage those two, what can be quite separate disciplines? Like most, not all, many organizations in the country are co-managing that, but most are not still. We have a large information systems division of our company, which has information security division as part of that. So we work very closely with our CISO colleagues. We do joint investigations with them when something major occurs. We do joint emergency preparedness planning with them, cyber drills, but I don't directly manage that. Okay, that makes sense. Just the fact that there is a partnership is, I think, progression from what I understand where where it was, which is great to hear. It's, it's critical, I think, in diminishing and mitigating risks in today's world. Absolutely. And something we, we talk about quite a lot and, and we kind of call it converged security or the convergence of, of security. With, with Yeah, <laughs> that, that was a term we all came up with about 15 years ago. And, and it was, you know, considered the real thing at that time. And then it sort of plummeted and people said convergence really doesn't exist or it shouldn't exist. And now it's sort of resurrecting, I see. So it's ebbed and flowed, I would say. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Going back a little bit to something you said earlier, you mentioned about, about your, your role as ASIS president in, in the US. You said you were... Not ASIS. the US, it was global. It was... A global, sorry, global At that president. time, it was, um, the president was a, the global president. Ah, apologies, doing you a disservice. And you mentioned you took that role during the 9-11 uh, incident in, in Yeah, I was elected. I was on the board and then elected uh, to the presidency in 2000 and, and went into the year 2021. So... What was that like, I guess, from from the how did the private security sector react and respond? You know, that must have been a, an incredibly challenging it was and demanding absolutely time. absolutely crazy, James. It, it, you know, this this occurred. I was on my way actually out of the office to attend a chapter meeting in Minnesota. And my people stopped me and said, you can't go to the airport. There's been an incident. And before long, obviously, we were off and running with, you know, all of the intelligence that, that we could find both from ASIS's perspective and obviously our, our corporation as well. I probably received within the first 24 to 48 hours of that event, I'm not exaggerating, four to 6,000 emails or calls from ASIS members around the globe 
expressing support to us, asking what they could do, whatever. And people were intense and people immediately started to link to figure out, you know, what are we going to do in our workplaces? What should we be, you know, people helping each other with determining best practices, because this was obviously something we had never experienced before. What was very interesting, too, was ASIS's big meeting, it's now called the GSX, that occurs every September, was just being held a couple weeks after this. And I spoke with the executive director, at the, you know, the senior executive director at the time, and he said, do you want to cancel? It was supposed to be in San Antonio, Texas. And we were expecting over 20,000 people, well over. And I said, I think we should not cancel. It was two or three weeks after the event. It was three. And I said, people are going to need this more than ever before, but we need to pivot. We need to change some of the curriculum. we got to get some speakers in to talk about emergency planning. By then, people will know what they've done, what they think they need to do, what their, you know, the vulnerabilities are in a situation like this. And we held the event. And I would say, with a few exceptions, everybody came. I mean, most people still came. We still had enormous crowds. And people all week kept saying to me, thank you for holding this. People needed to be with other security professionals. It was palpable. People were emotional. I mean, it was probably the greatest meeting we've ever had because we realized then how important we all were. And we realized how much we needed each other. So there was, I think, tremendous changes and innovation and best practices identified. I started to create the guidelines council for ASIS at that time that I think have made significant changes since. So that event, as horrific as it was, helped create a very different security industry. And more importantly, through no efforts on our part, helped organizations to understand the importance of security within their organization. So it wasn't just a profit drain department anymore. It was a critically needed department that needed investment and for them to be able to be proactive and good planning and good resources and good technology and good people. So I think it changed the course of the sophistication of the security industry. Absolutely. I, I can only imagine what it, what it must have been like. And it, uh, incredible to hear so many colleagues from outside of the US who, who, were, who were obviously offering their, their messages of, of support. And it, it's where something like the security industry really does become a, a global network, a global industry. I know ASIS has chapters all over the world. It was amazing. I, I remember, do you know Peter French? I do, yes. I remember Peter coming and saying, you know, a lot of people came from abroad to that meeting and people saying, you know, we have to be together on this. Welcome back and a huge thanks to Bonnie Mitchellman for her time and sharing her thoughts and experience in the security profession with us there. There's a huge amount to take away from that discussion. Well, certainly that's how I felt anyway. Spoiler alert, we're not quite done yet either, so don't log off just yet. But what was great to hear was how much of a community feel the security industry has built up over the years. There's often a sense from conversations that we have that security and risk management roles can be a little siloed at times, particularly in end user environments. And for too long, executives have often viewed security as a grudge purchase or a disruptor rather than an enabler. But as the industry has come together, whether that be in the form of global or sector specific associations, it seems like a community has been formed that is almost like an extended family. As Bonnie noted, people might change jobs in security, but they rarely leave the industry. Clearly, nowhere is this sense of extended family more obvious than during times of crisis, such as that of 9-11. But from a more holistic perspective, getting the most out of what is a high-pressurized and demanding environment is absolutely crucial to job satisfaction. Whether it be joining online webinars or forums, 
networking at events or through mentoring schemes, this sense of community enables new opportunities to take on more strategic and executive leadership roles that Bonnie herself is very much in now. As always, there are a few links in the episode description for further reading, including a link to register your free ticket to IFSEC, which, don't forget, takes place in London between the 16th to the 18th of May. My advice? Get it in your diary today and join that very community. Or, if you can't make it, keep an eye on IFSEC Global for all the latest news and views, though I'm sure that goes without saying. In a slight twist to normal proceedings, I'm actually going to let Bonnie end this episode. We ended up chatting a little more after the main interview and discussed what qualities Bonnie believes make for a successful security or enterprise-rich professional. One of the most important traits is being resilient because it is not an environment that things are easy or always go well. They often don't go well, which is why we need people like us in it. And if you fall apart when things don't go well, if you're not a good crisis manager, if you're not a, a calm, confident person in the wake of crises with, with your people and with your executive teams, you can't really get the job done in the same way. And I think, you know, resiliency and strength and being strategic is very important. You know, we've had a lot of people with great tactical skills in this industry for many years. And now what we've pivoted to not only needing those skills, but even more importantly, needing excellent strategic skills and business skills and political skills and communication skills and project management skills and those kinds of things, analytical skills, you know, intelligence. So those kinds of things are critically important to the further success of this industry and lowering and decreasing and mitigating risk for all of us. Really, really good point. And um, I think it's why security professionals in organizations are often seen as leaders because of the need and requirement to have that leadership role, to have those qualities to to manage crisis situations. Um, and and I think I think that's again been been never clearer in, in my eyes and in the last few years with the COVID crisis. Um, I agree with you. One of the things that worries me these days is because of all of the visibility and and social media and coverage of everything that's going on in our communities and our countries and in our corporations. Lay people, non-security people, have become extremely much more fearful. There's often knee-jerk reactions demanding particular security interventions don't actually make sense or may not be a best practice or may create liability. So I think as security professionals, we also have to continue to ensure we are together working on guidelines and standards and criteria to achieve you know, excellent practices so that we're not allowing knee-jerk reactions to drive things that are happening and investment in our corporations and in our communities, because I think that's a very dangerous route to going that route.